I would encourage you this morning then to turn in your Bibles or on your device to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Since her death, a lot of stories have been told about Queen Elizabeth II. And here's one of them that's quite interesting. Every legislative session begins with a regal visit from the queen. She wears her crown and her robe and processes down a hallway lined with the queen's guards who literally strike the stone walls with their swords to make sparks fly as she walks by. The hallway ends at the House of Lords, where the queen enters to take her seat on the throne and essentially commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. There is a grand staircase leading to the hallway, and eventually it became too much for the queen to climb. So they decided to start using the elevator. Well, the first year that they did use the elevator, the elevator operator accidentally pushed the button for the wrong floor. And when the door opened, instead of the hallway to the House of Lords, it was the maintenance floor. Without looking up, Alice from the cleaning crew pushes her cleaning cart into the elevator as she has done countless times. Only this time, she has pinned the Queen of England against the back wall of the small elevator. The doors close behind Alice. And there's Alice, stuck in the elevator with the Queen and her guard. As you might expect, an awkward silence ensued with no one knowing quite what to do. But then the silence was broken by the queen's uncontrollable laughter and the most remarkable invitation. Rather than opening the doors to let Alice off of the elevator, the queen instructs the elevator operator to take them to the proper floor. The doors open. And to everyone's shock, out walks Her Majesty the Queen and Alice, the maintenance worker. There's the Queen in her regalia along with Alice in her maintenance uniform as they process side by side down the royal hallway. And so, once a year, for the rest of Alice's life, she is invited to Buckingham Palace for high tea with her good friend, Queen Elizabeth. Now, this story of royalty showing uncommon kindness to a commoner like Alice is really our story, isn't it? It's our story if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's our story because it is the story of the gospel. 
And our story, the story of the gospel, is captured in three statements. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was dead, but now I am very much alive. Once I was poor, but now as a child of God, I am incredibly rich. 1 Peter 2.10 sums up our story with these words. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is truly amazing grace. I want you to ponder this succinct statement from commentary author Dale Davis. He writes this, and I quote, The first principle for grappling with the marvel of God's love is to realize that God has no business, in a sense, loving whom He loves. Let me repeat it. The first principle for grappling with the marvel of God's love is to realize that God has no business loving us, loving whom He loves. And still the, the message, the story of God's grace and love is so clear. God is rich in mercy. Let that sink in. God is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. There are many good illustrations of God's marvelous love and his grace and mercy to us. To those who are spiritually lost, spiritually dead, and spiritually poor. Among them could be the story of the prodigal son out of the New Testament. But today I want you to go with me to the time of King David. The time when he ruled over the nation of Israel. True, it was a different time with different players. But the story in 2 Samuel 9 reflects our story just the same. Now let's set the scene for what's happening here in this chapter, 2 Samuel 9. It's about midway through David's 40-year reign over the kingdom, over the nation of Israel. The wars which had characterized his early reign are now past. They are, they are history. There's a time of peace for God's people. And you could say this was David's finest hour. Now, use your imagination with me. And let's join David on the veranda of the royal palace. It's a beautiful morning. We are with him enjoying a cup of freshly brewed coffee. I'm hoping they had coffee then. I'm hoping they'll have it later. <laughs> In that relaxed moment, David begins to reflect on his life. A smile crosses his face as he remembers the traumatic moment when God firmly planted a smooth stone in the forehead of the giant Goliath. But his smile turns to a frown as he remembers running for his life from the angry rage of King Saul. But even during those days, there was reason to smile 
There was reason for joy during that treacherous time when he was running for his life. For vividly etched in David's memory bank is the picture of his friend, the son of King Saul, by the name of Jonathan. David remembers him. He remembers him as a strong and courageous man, and yet a loving man and a gentle man. It was Jonathan himself who gave up his royal robes, heir to the throne of King Saul, to pave the way for David's God-destined destiny. And it was in this moment of reflecting on the memory of his beloved friend Jonathan that David realized he had some unfinished business that he had to take care of. So follow along now in your device or your Bible as we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? I meant to say before I started reading that there, are, there is one word that occurs three times in this passage. Think and follow along and see if you can pick out that one word that occurs three times. Uh, verse 3, And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machar, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, actually grandson of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant? Who am I that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always 
eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray for a moment and ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gospel of Christ. Thank you for the salvation which you have given us. Thank you, Lord, that once we were lost, but be through Christ, we can be found. Once we were dead, but we can become alive spiritually. Once we were so poor, we can now be incredibly rich through Jesus Christ our Lord and through the salvation and through the gospel that you have given us. So now, Lord, bless this word, bless your word, and may it speak to us to help us grow. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. The roots of this narrative are planted deep in the soil of one word that occurs three times in the chapter. Did you find it? What's the word? Kindness, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 7. Three times in 13 verses, we have the repetition of this word. Now, the word kindness here means more than simply helping someone or encouraging someone. Scriptural synonyms for this word includes words like this, loyal love, loving kindness, or covenant faithfulness. New Testament synonyms would be the familiar words of grace and mercy. So all of those synonyms, loyal love, loving kindness, covenant faithfulness, grace and mercy, all enhance the meaning of the word here that is translated kindness. Now let me take you back to the statement that I made from Dale Davis once again. The first principle for grappling with the marvel of God's loving kindness, God's covenant faithfulness, God's great grace and mercy is to realize that God has no business loving whom he loves. And yet, the message is so clear. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Once we were lost, but through Christ we are found. Once we were dead in trespasses and sins, but now we can be eternally, spiritually alive through Jesus Christ. Once we were so poor, impoverished, unable to bring anything 
to provide for the salvation which we have but through Christ and his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection, we are incredibly and eternally rich. Rich beyond our wildest imaginations, really. That's our story. And that story is vividly illustrated here in 2 Samuel 9. And our story is played out in these three scenes. Scene 1 is titled, Once I Was Lost, But Now I'm Found. Go back with me to the veranda where David is reflecting on the memory of his beloved friend Jonathan. Just after Goliath was dropped to the ground with a resounding thud, David was called for an interview with King Saul. And that's where the version of our story actually begins. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verses 1 through 4, we begin to see the background of this story. Let me share it with you, 1 Samuel 18, 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul that is, David, had finished speaking, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him, took David that day, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant. This is important here. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And here it is. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, the royal robe, heir to the throne, and gave it to David, and gave him his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And that covenant which David and Jonathan made is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 20, just a couple of chapters over. And here's the text, verses 15 and 16, 1 Samuel 20, verses 15 and 16. And do not cut off your steadfast love. Well, let me back up to 14. If I am still alive, this is Jonathan speaking to David. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Now watch this. And verse 15. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant, a solemn promise with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Well now the enemies have been cut off. And now it dawns on David that he must be sure that he honors that covenant, that promise that he made with Jonathan all those years prior. And thus the question that opens our text in 2 Samuel 9. Look at it again, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul and Jonathan? that I may show him kindness, grace, mercy, loving kindness, covenant, faithfulness to, for Jonathan's sake. But now, for us to understand the full impact 
of that statement, we need some cultural background information. You might know this, but let me remind you that whenever a new king came to power in those days, in that culture, it was customary for him to completely destroy every vestige of the previous king's reign, including the family. This meant that any members of the king's family were to be killed to prevent any possibility of a coup. But in David's case, he had made a solemn covenant. He had made a solemn promise. He had promised Jonathan that he would care for his offspring, for his family, the family of King Saul, the family of Jonathan. He had promised to show kindness to Jonathan's family. And that included the family of David's rival, David's great enemy, King Saul. Now what happens next in the story is clearly orchestrated by the sovereignty of God. Look again at verses 2 through 5. Saul or David has asked this question, Is there anyone? Is there anyone that I can show kindness to the family of Jonathan and King Saul? And as it would be in the sovereignty of God, there was a servant of the house of Saul, verse 2, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said, where is he? And Ziba said, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And the king David sent and brought him from the house of Machar, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. God's sovereign will put Ziba in the right place at the right time to do the right thing. He has all the intel that David needs. And almost as an aside, one important fact surfaces about this son of Jonathan. He's crippled. We learn the cause of his disability in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Just here, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. Here's how it happened. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. You might remember that Saul and Jonathan died in battle at the same time. And the nurse of Jonathan's son took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. lame, And his name was Mephibosheth. But now this presents another cultural hurdle. Disabled persons were rarely, if ever, allowed to come into the presence of the king in those days. But David had a promise to keep. His steadfast love for Jonathan trumped all cultural norms. And so without hesitation, David instructs Ziba to bring this lame, lone survivor of King Saul's family the son of Jonathan, to the palace. 
Now, do you see the message here? Do you catch the story? For all practical purposes, Jonathan's son Mephibosheth was lost. He lived in secret. Furthermore, if he were to be found, it would be a death sentence for him. But David, like God, like Jesus, initiates the rescue. Go find him. Go bring him to me. This is what God does for his chosen children. Jesus seeks the lost. This was Jesus' mission when he was on earth. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. And the Holy Spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel is continuing to bring men and women, boys and girls into the kingdom of God through the, through the preaching of the gospel. So in God-like fashion, like Jesus, David pursues the cripple so that he might shower him with abundant kindness and grace and mercy. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. Now watch in scene two of the story how David, like God, like Christ, transforms the status of Mephibosheth from being as good as dead to being fully alive. Look at verse 6 again. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, Who am I? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? These verses are the hinge that opens the door to this amazing story. They are, very, they are the very heart of this story. Observe David's kindness overflowing, extravagant overflow into the life of Mephibosheth. Surely, if you think about it, Mephibosheth must have been filled with fear as he was brought to, to face the king. He, he knew what the consequences would be. He understood the culture of that day. He knew it was a death sentence to stand before King David. But David bridged that gap, the gap between death and life, with three simple words. Do not fear. To say that this was music to the ears of Mephibosheth is an understatement. It doesn't even touch the depth of the emotion that floods this scene. With three simple words, do not fear, 
David transforms what was a death sentence into a life eternal sentence. Now don't miss the message here. This is our story. If we have come to faith in Christ. Therefore, Romans 5.1 Since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14.6 I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Once we were lost, but now we're found. Once we were dead, but now we are incredibly, beautifully alive. But there's one more scene. In scene three, once we were poor, content, completely impoverished, but now we are incredibly rich. Mephibosheth could never have imagined what would come next. From those three life-giving words, do not fear, came a flood of incomprehensible, unlimited, extreme, to the max kindness, grace, and mercy. Look at it again in verses 7 and 8 of this text. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and here it is, so incredibly important. You shall eat at my table, always. We may have trouble understanding that in our culture, but in that culture, that was a glorious invitation. To eat at the king's table? Are you kidding? You know what that meant? That meant that Mephibosheth was one of his sons. In fact, the text tells us later, at like you eat at my table every day, all the time. I provide everything that you need. You are like one of the family. You are, in fact, like one of my sons. To be brought from obscurity to the king's table. Oh, Talk about grace and mercy. Talk about the salvation that God has provided for us. This is an outrageous offer on the part of David. It was the ultimate honor. And not only that, as we read in the rest of the text, David restored all of the land of Saul to the grandson Mephibosheth and not only that provided all the labor that he needed he didn't have to do a thing he was crippled you remember this is grace this is mercy this is provision this is rising from obscurity to be made a son of the king David goes beyond addition to multiplication he literally heaps loving kindness on the cripple Mephibosheth. He keeps his promise, his covenant faithfulness to Jonathan. He protects life. He prepares a table for him. David goes beyond survival and reaches out to the furthest extent of abundance. And think of this. This to me is the most 
glorious picture. Picture it in your mind. Here is the cripple Mephibosheth. And when he sits at the king's table, the tablecloth of grace and mercy hides his crippled state. That's my story. That's your story if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Mephibosheth, it says, lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And just in case you miss this critical fact that frames David's multiplication of mercy, Mephibosheth, we are told once again in verse 13, was crippled, lame in both his feet. A.W. Pink said it well, quote, Behind the noble magnanimity exercised by David toward the last descendant of his archenemy Saul, we may perceive the shining forth of the glory of God's grace toward his fallen and sinful people. And then catch this application that Pinks makes. Those who are most indebted to the divine favor are most conscious of the poverty of their language to express the gratitude and praise which is due from them. Those who are the most indebted to the divine favor are most conscious of the poverty of our language to express the praise and worship that belongs to the Savior who has given us life. How amazing is God's mercy and grace to us. Once we were lost, but now we are found. Once we were dead, but now we are alive. Once we were so incredibly poor, and now we are incredibly rich. This is the story of Mephibosheth, and it's your story if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the story of the gospel of the grace of God. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. It's Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those that are lost. It's Romans 5.6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's Romans 5.10. While we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. It's the story of redemption for crippled sinners who were weak and enemies of God. And that's what Jesus Christ does for crippled sinners like us. I began with this statement. The first principle for grappling with the marvel of God's love is to realize that he has no business loving whom he loves. Now, listen to the application the author of that statement makes. What I'm saying, Davis says, is that we are the Lord's Mephibosheths. And there is absolutely no reason 
why we should be eating continually at the king's table. And if we have any sense, we won't be able to understand it either. Jeremiah reminds us of this incredible truth in Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Today, I want you to not to fail. To pause in grateful thanks and praise for the never-ceasing grace and mercy and loving kindness and loyal love and covenant faithfulness of God through Jesus Christ made visible and available in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's my story. I wonder, is it yours? Let's pray. Our God and Father, you are incredibly, overwhelmingly gracious and good to us. We owe a debt we cannot pay, but in your grace and mercy, you have provided all that we need for life, for riches, for everything in your Son, Christ. I pray, Father, that if there be one here who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, who have not committed their heart and life to Christ, today would be the day that they would come to the Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for this time to share together as the body of Christ. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.